Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 14-year-old Carol Fugate awoke in a blur. The walls of the cold, small room were closing in, and someone was speaking to her. They told her that her family was dead. Carol shook her head and shoved her face into her pillow. The voices were lying, she reminded herself. Her family was fine, though she wasn't sure if she was or where she was. Before she could do anything else, a nurse entered and led her to a cafeteria. Carol wasn't hungry, but it didn't seem like she had a choice. She stared back out at the empty hallway and heard footsteps, followed by a loud, piercing cry. Through an open door, Carol spotted a woman fighting to be released from the grasp of several aides. The men forced the woman into a straitjacket, onto an exam table, and braced her head between two electrodes. The woman convulsed as electricity zapped through her body. Suddenly, it all made sense to Carol. She was in a mental hospital. The voices in her head, the ones talking about her mom and baby sister dying or to blame. For a second, she relaxed, but soon realized her troubles were only beginning. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed the troubled relationship between 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, 14-year-old Carol Fugate. In 1958, Charles took Carol hostage and went on a killing spree in Lincoln, Nebraska. In his twisted mind, dragging her along on a violent rampage was the only way they could stay together. This week, we'll discuss how Carol finally escaped from Charles, the shocking end to the murders, and two of the most publicized trials in Nebraska history. All that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. The Montana gas station attendant couldn't shake the feeling that there was something off about the customer in front of him. Still, he politely rang up the young man and casually asked where he was headed. The customer replied that it didn't matter where he went. Then he left, speeding down the interstate with a teenage girl in his car. That brief, unpleasant interaction was likely the best outcome the clerk could have hoped for. His customer, Charles Starkweather, had killed another gas station attendant the year before, and in the past eight days, he'd murdered nine more people. Now, on January 29, 1958, Charles and his girlfriend turned hostage, Carol Fugate, were among the most wanted fugitives in the country. Charles was fleeing desperately from Nebraska to Washington State, He had a brother there and hoped they could hide out at his place until the heat died down. But on the road, Charles grew paranoid they'd be spotted before they ever made it. He suddenly ordered Carol to change clothes and started looking for a fresh getaway car. Carol did as she was told. It wasn't the first time Charles demanded she wear something different. This time, she put on a fresh blouse. Like the car, it was stolen from a murder victim. The situation was gruesome, but Carol had no choice. She believed if she didn't do exactly as Charles said, evil gangsters would kill her mother, stepfather, and two-year-old half-sister. Eventually, Charles spotted a man napping in a Buick on the side of the road. He abruptly changed direction and approached the 37-year-old shoe salesman inside, Merle Collison. To him, Collison was the perfect target. Before I continue with Charles' psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. While Charles' victims all looked different, they had one thing in common. They were all defenseless. Doctors Ronald and Stephen Holmes made their career studying serial killers and broadly categorized them into four distinct types— One of those was the power and control killer. These murderers are motivated by a desire for dominance and choose their victims accordingly. Power was something Charles craved after being bullied for most of his adolescence, and getting control of his dangerous situation was likely on his mind as he approached Merle Collison on the side of the interstate. Charles pounded on the window and ordered Collison to get out of the car. Then... Without warning, he pointed his gun and fired. 
According to Charles, once Collison was injured, Carol picked up a gun as well, delivering the grace blow or killing shot. Charles claimed Carol was the most trigger-happy person he'd ever met. Carol denied this, insisting it was Charles who shot Collison at least eight times. Carol's version of the story lines up with a power and control killer. On a relentless quest for dominance, simply killing wasn't enough for Charles. He also destroyed his victims' bodies, engaging in what some psychologists call overkill, a rage-induced attack that goes far beyond ending a life. A psychologist who examined Charles noted that he saw the lives of others as no more valuable than a rock or a piece of wood. He lacked any empathy for his victims. So, with Merle Collison's dead body slumped over his steering wheel, Charles nonchalantly opened the door and shoved the corpse to the passenger side. Then, he instructed a mortified Carol to get in. With her in the back seat and Collison's corpse next to him, Charles attempted to drive away, but he hadn't thought through his plan. He didn't even know how to start the Buick. As he struggled, a good Samaritan, Joseph Sprinkle, pulled over to help. He assumed they were stranded, until he leaned into the car and saw Merle Collison's corpse. Before he could act, Charles shoved a gun pointed in Joseph's face and ordered him to fix the car. Frightened, Joseph looked around, saw the emergency brake was stuck, and quickly worked on loosening it. The entire time, Charles kept his eyes locked on Joseph. He only dropped his stare when he heard the car door open. Behind him, Carol Fugate started running down the side of the highway. She'd seized her opportunity to flee and given Joseph one of his own. While Charles was distracted, Joseph grabbed the gun and tried to yank it away from the killer. But Charles kept his grip tight and smacked Joseph with his free hand it was a deadly game of tug of war. Meanwhile, Carol ran as fast as she could, zigzagging in case Charles shot at her. She spotted a police car in the distance and headed towards it. When she got there, she cried hysterically, begging the officer for help. The deputy let her in the passenger door, assuming there was some kind of petty fight over a car accident. He had no idea of the gravity of the situation. Carol sobbed and shook so much, the officer couldn't make out anything she said. She was likely experiencing a psychological shock. In short, severe trauma can essentially short-circuit the brain. According to doctor and author Alice Boys, quote, the hallmark symptom of psychological shock is feeling a surge of adrenaline, your mind will likely feel very foggy, like you can't think straight. Carol wanted to explain exactly what had happened, but her mind and body were still trying to process the trauma. She was paralyzed. Back at the Buick, Joseph finally wrestled the gun out of Charles' grasp. Charles ran back to the original vehicle he'd been trying to abandon and sped off alone. As he fled the scene, the deputy tried to keep Carol calm. She sobbed, barely able to get out a coherent sentence. Finally, the deputy was able to make out a single word that stopped him cold. Starkweather. 
the fugitive killer at the center of a national manhunt. The deputy radioed nearby officers. He couldn't chase down Charles with Carol in his car, but he could call for backup. Hearing the news, officers further along the interstate parked their car in the middle of the road, creating a makeshift blockade. Then, they waited for Charles Starkweather. But Charles never backed down from a game of chicken. When he saw a police cruiser blocking his path, he didn't stop. He swerved around the patrol car and hit the gas. The officers shifted gears to charge after him. Both cars hit over 100 miles per hour as Charles left the highway and turned onto a residential street in Douglas, Montana. Locals scattered as they saw the speeding vehicles plow down the street. Charles was forced to slow down to avoid the frantic pedestrians, and the officers caught up. They rammed their cars into Charles, hooking their front bumper on the back of his. They thought they had him. But within seconds, the street cleared and Charles put the pedal to the metal. The police car bumper tore off, still attached to Charles' rear. Giving chase, one of the policemen leaned out of his car and fired two rounds. One bullet hit the bumpers, but the second went straight through the rear window. Charles' car suddenly stopped. A few seconds later, he stumbled out, clutching one side of his head. Blood oozed through his fingers. The officers ordered him to get on the ground. Charles didn't listen, crying as he wobbled toward them. An officer then fired a warning shot, missing Charles deliberately. At that, he finally dropped to the ground and complied. When the policemen approached, they saw a piece of glass from the broken window had nicked his ear. That was the extent of his injuries. After a 44-hour manhunt, Charles Starkweather was finally in custody. When Carol Fugate heard the news, she was finally able to breathe easier. But as she calmed down, she asked the authorities a chilling question. Where are my parents? When we return, Carol learns her family's fate. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters: The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
Now, back to the story. On January 29, 1958, Montana police finally captured 19-year-old spree killer Charles Starkweather. His eight-day murder spree was over. When questioned, Charles said his hostage, 14-year-old Carol Fugate, had nothing to do with the attacks. Carol was taken to the local sheriff's house, where his wife looked out for her until they figured out what to do next. There, the sheriff's wife tried to help Carol change out of her blood-stained clothes, but Carol cried at the suggestion. Most of what she said was incomprehensible, but she seemed terrified Charles would be back to get her. For Carol, the innocent suggestion had triggered traumatic memories of Charles forcing her to change clothes on the road. Carol was so hysterical, she had to be medically tranquilized to sleep that night. Charles Starkweather, however, seemed much less affected by his crimes. After he was arrested in Montana, he was extradited back to Nebraska. In the process, he admitted to yet another murder, that of a gas station attendant back in December 1957. After newspapers printed the story, fury rose in his hometown of Lincoln. Ten people died before the authorities could stop Charles, and they'd had plenty of opportunities to catch him in the meantime. There was so much public hostility that the FBI conducted a review of the case. They ultimately cleared the precinct of negligence, though that did little to satisfy the victim's families and friends. Newspaper photos of Charles in jail, prowling like a caged animal, only fueled the fire. But the Lincoln authorities had a bigger problem than bad press. As they cataloged Charles' belongings to take him into custody, officers unfolded a letter from inside his jacket. It was a handwritten confession. Riddled with typos, it concluded, I and Carol are sorry for what has happened, because I have hurt everybody because of it, and so has Carol. It was signed by Chuck S. and Carol F. Notably, both names were written in Charles' handwriting, but for the state of Nebraska, facing pressure from the media, citizens, and even the FBI, it became key evidence. They suspected Carol was to blame too. Combined with the fact that she didn't escape Charles sooner, authorities put together a case to charge the 14-year-old with murder. It's important to note that at this time, Carol was often given sedatives. She was likely still suffering from shock and PTSD. As proceedings against her began, the drugs kept Carol in a constant state of fog. On January 31, 1958, she arrived at Lincoln's jailhouse. Outside, journalists surrounded her with loud questions and disorienting cameras. One of them shouted that he was sorry for Carol's family. Carol's head snapped up. She still didn't know what had happened to her parents or half-sister. She tried to ask more questions, but the sheriff led her away to jail. Alone in her cell, Carol cried uncontrollably, rarely wiping her face. Instead, she used her tissues to make paper dolls for her baby sister, Betty Jean. The little girl loved paper dolls. It was a tense situation. When Carol asked to see her mom, 
no one knew what to say. They might have been worried about interfering with the investigation, or perhaps they just didn't feel right breaking the news. A few brave visitors actually attempted to tell her the truth, that her former boyfriend had massacred her family, but Carol convinced herself they were lying. This reaction wasn't necessarily a bad thing. A study by Dr. Lisa Bartolotti at the University of Birmingham suggested that delusions and hallucinations can serve as a shield from information we don't have the mental strength to process. She found them especially helpful when subjects were dealing with multiple traumatic events at one time. In Carol's case, after breaking up with her boyfriend, being taken hostage, and witnessing several violent murders, she didn't have the mental capacity to properly grieve for her parents and sister. So she maintained the delusion that they were still alive. But as the days passed, Carol reported that she was hearing voices and continued to insist that her family was still alive. It was enough for authorities to transfer her to a mental institution. It was only after hours alone in her cold, dark room that she started to consider the possibility that her family really was dead. On February 2nd, 1958, Carol's older sister Barbara visited along with their biological father. Carol was prohibited from being alone in the room with them, so a guard set in on the gathering too. Carol was overjoyed to see her sister. Of all the people in the world, she knew Barbara wouldn't lie to her. She asked if her stepfather, mother, and baby sister were really gone. Barbara simply nodded solemnly. And finally, Carol believed it. Her family was dead. Carol asked how they were killed, but Barbara didn't have an answer. She tried to comfort her sister, but she couldn't stay long. Carol had other visitors. The deputy county attorney and the district prosecutor both needed to see her. Even after they sat down, the two men loomed large over 95-pound Carol. Still processing her grief, she assumed they needed her help to convict Charles. She had no idea she was also under suspicion of murder. The men reassured Carol that all they sought was the truth and started to ask her questions. Carol was terrified, grieving, in shock, and possibly still feeling the effects of sedatives. Somehow, she got it into her head that giving a wrong answer would lead to a punishment of forced electroshock therapy. She decided to tell the men what she thought they wanted to hear by saying she was guilty. Psychologist Saul Kasson studied 30 years worth of false confessions and has stated, quote, false confessions are not rare. More than a quarter of the 365 people exonerated in recent decades by the nonprofit Innocence Project had confessed to their alleged crime. Kasson goes on to say that standard interrogation techniques can pressure even innocent individuals to admit to things they never did. Young people are especially vulnerable to those tactics. Carol was tired, scared, confused, and medicated. She wasn't in her right mind, but after hearing her confession, the deputy and prosecutor asked for her full account. 
they wanted to hear about the murders of Robert Jensen and Carol King, two teenagers Charles killed before fleeing Nebraska. Carol admitted to holding a loaded shotgun while Charles carjacked the couple. She didn't realize that doing so implicated her in the murders. She also didn't know that a person convicted as an accomplice to murder could receive the same sentence as the murderer themselves. The men next asked Carol if she'd taken money from Jensen. Carol tried to explain that she had taken the money under duress. She firmly believed if she didn't obey Charles, her family's lives would be put at risk. She related how she sat in the car and heard two shots fired from outside after the confrontation. She cried because she knew the shots meant King and Jensen were dead. That meant she was alone in the car with a loaded shotgun. She was armed and had a potential chance to escape, yet she still didn't run. In the eyes of her interrogators, that made her guilty. But their barrage of questions didn't end there. In total, the interrogation lasted 13 long hours. The final story was enough to charge Carol with first-degree murder and felony robbery. And that wasn't all the prosecutors did to build their case. Before leaving, they asked Carol if she'd like to see Charles Starkweather. Carol screamed that she never wanted to see him again. So instead, they asked her if she'd like to write him a note, offering her paper and a pencil. Carol took them and wrote, quote, Charlie, I don't want to see you again. I am afraid of what I might do. She handed the note back to the men, who tucked it away for later use. Charles didn't have time to read notes from his ex. He was about to go on trial for murder. Charles Starkweather's case went to trial in May 1958, only two and a half months after he was caught. Even though he killed 10 people, the state believed it was speediest to only try him for one murder. Whether he was found guilty of killing one person or 10, he'd face the same punishment, either life in prison or the death penalty. With national attention on the case, it was more important to punish him quickly than thoroughly. With that in mind, the state of Nebraska chose to pursue the murder of Robert Jensen specifically for two reasons. One was that they had the confession of his alleged accomplice, Carol Fugate. The second was that it would be easy to prove his motive for carjacking since Charles clearly stole Jensen's car after killing him and his girlfriend, Carol King. When the trial began on May 5, 1958, snipers lined the court's rooftops, ready to shoot if Charles tried to break free. Inside, the courtroom was packed with press and family members. Everyone wanted a glimpse of the infamous killer. Hoping to negotiate a lighter sentence, Charles' lawyers advised him to plead insanity. But he and his family were vehemently against it. Charles told his defense team that nobody would remember him if the court decided he was legally insane. Instead, he pleaded not guilty and stated that he'd killed everyone in self-defense. A psychiatrist who evaluated Charles stated that he cared more about being labeled insane than facing execution. His plea was an ego move. 
Charles seemingly hoped to die young and be celebrated forever, just like his idol, James Dean. He got his wish. After 18 days in court and 22 hours of jury deliberation, Charles Starkweather was found guilty. He was sentenced to death by the electric chair. But in the eyes of Lincoln, Nebraska, justice had not yet been served. With Charles convicted, the state shifted their energy to prosecuting Carol Ann Fugate for the same crimes that earned Charles a death sentence. Coming up, Carol fights an uphill battle. Now, back to the story. Like most teenage girls, Carol Ann Fugate spent the summer of 1958 worrying what other people thought about her. The difference was, everyone in Lincoln, Nebraska, thought she was a mass murderer. The previous January, she'd been held hostage as her boyfriend committed a crime spree that killed 10 people, including members of her own family. Though she was only being tried as an accomplice to one of those murders, she still faced the death penalty. Leading up to the trial, locals and the media painted Carol as a vicious femme fatale, a mastermind who manipulated Charles into murder. Carol was accused of fornication and even of being pregnant with Charles' baby. In 1958, those rumors stung much worse than they would today. Carol's lawyer also got caught in the crossfire. Before long, he received daily death threats. One person wondered if he was defending Carol only because he was hard up for money. Another citizen went on the record to say they hoped Carol is sitting on Charles' lap when he was put in the electric chair. At that point, the only witness who could help Carol's case was her ex-boyfriend, the convicted murderer. Sadly, the prosecution was doing everything in their power to ensure Charles didn't stick up for Carol. It was no easy task, since Charles Starkweather's favorite prison hobby was changing his story. He started scribbling furiously on his cell wall that he'd killed nine boys while Carol had killed two girls. He circled the twisted confession with the heart as if it was a perverse high school love note. Not long afterward, he received a note from Carol that the prosecutors had been holding until the right time. It said she never wanted to see him again. In response, Charles formally confessed to authorities that Carol was present for the murders of her mother and stepfather and that she'd helped him do it. In his latest account, he stated Carol had pointed the gun at her mom and threatened to blow her away. Charles claimed he'd taken the gun and actually committed the three murders while Carol watched. When it was over, he said she went to the living room and calmly watched TV. Carol disputes this version of events and it doesn't line up with Charles' previous confessions. But Charles may have realized that he wouldn't be executed until after Carol was tried. By slowing down the trial process with false confessions, he was prolonging his own life. If the state prosecution team suspected this, they didn't care. This latest confession was crucial to winning the case, as long as it was the same version Charles told on the stand. 
Around that time, in late October 1958, Charles' cellmate noticed that Charles started to get preferential treatment in prison. While most inmates were allowed to smoke a few times per day, Charles suddenly had a seemingly unlimited supply of cigarettes. The guards extended his shower time and even gave him headphones so he could listen to the radio anytime he wanted. These weren't just jailhouse perks. The state officially offered Charles the possibility of parole and a reduction of his sentence from death to life in prison as long as he testified against Carol and kept his mouth shut about her attempts to escape. Finally, they appealed to his ego. Prosecutors reminded Charles that Carol had called him crazy. They said she made fun of his bow-legged walk. The gossip infuriated Charles. He was so angry, he told the prosecutor he wished he'd killed Carol when he had the chance. It was the final nail in the coffin. Charles would say whatever he needed to get back at Carol Fugate. Meanwhile, Carol's lawyer prepared to defend her against accusations from Charles, her neighbors, and the state of Nebraska. It was no simple task. Carol herself could be her own worst enemy. When she was a child, Carol's mother had taught her to always be a little soldier. No matter how hard things got, she instructed her daughter to never show any weakness. It was likely a tactic to help protect the little girl from her abusive alcoholic birth father. According to therapist Shannon Thomas, domestic abusers often target victims they can get a big reaction from. Seeing their victim break down makes them feel superior. By keeping her chin up and refusing to react, Carol may have kept herself safe. However, when it came to journalists, her stiff demeanor backfired. It wasn't interpreted as strength. Instead, it was viewed as callous and remorseless. To combat all the bad press, Carol's legal team agreed for her to do a single on-air interview the week before her trial. On October 20th, 1958, she sat down with reporters. The plan was to remind the world that she was just a young girl and to also prove that she wasn't pregnant. Sadly, the 15-year-old still came off rigid and unsympathetic. Still, her lawyers had hope. The only opinions that truly mattered were those of the jury. In this case, the jury selection was just as crucial as the evidence itself. While the prosecution and defense were able to agree on a pool of people, one juror perhaps should have been disqualified. The person in question made a bet that Carol would get the death penalty. Unfortunately, this detail was only uncovered after the trial. Going into the proceedings on October 27, 1958, Carol Fugate had Charles, the media, and at least one juror working against her. She was tried on two charges, first-degree murder of Robert Jensen and murder in the perpetration of the robbery of Robert Jensen. The prosecution presented a strong case. They outlined all the times Carol could have potentially run away, but didn't. They also emphasized the viciousness of the crimes and most importantly, brought in testimony from Charles Starkweather himself. When he was brought into the gallery, the crowd was silent. 
It was as if the world's biggest celebrity just walked in. For Charles, it was his James Dean moment. On the stand, he painted Carol as a willing and active participant in the killing spree. In response, Carol's defense pointed out that Charles had initially told the police Carol was innocent. The team went on to present Carol as just another one of his victims, powerless and trapped. If the Lincoln police force couldn't stop Charles, how could they expect a 14-year-old girl to? They also brought in witness statements that confirmed Carol continuously asked for her parents, proving she truly believed they were alive the entire time. And the lawyer reminded the jury that Carol did eventually run away. The minute she saw an officer who could help her, she bolted on the interstate. When authorities found her, however, she was incomprehensible and inconsolable. She clearly wasn't in any state to confess, but on her person, she had a note that read, help, please don't ignore. She'd written it during the crime spree. In their closing arguments, Carol's counsel reminded the jury that it was nigh impossible for Carol to get a fair trial because she was so publicly villainized. He pleaded with them to do the fair thing and to see Carol not as a villain, but as a victim trapped under the wing of a madman. Before the jury left to deliberate, the judge reminded them that if they found Carol's actions were performed under duress, she should be found not guilty. But the deliberations weren't so easy. Carol was just 15 and the jurors had a hard time sentencing a young girl to death. On the other hand, they couldn't let go of the prosecution's side of the story. The jury at large may have experienced so-called cognitive bias. According to Professor Jay Maddock, this happens when individuals are presented with complex information and our brain cuts corners to help process the details. Maddox stated, quote, one form of cognitive bias is called cognitive dissonance. This is the feeling of discomfort you can experience when your beliefs are not in line with your actions or new information. When in this state, people can react in two ways, change their beliefs to be in line with the new information or interpret the new information in a way that justifies their original beliefs. If the jurors already believed Carol was an accomplice thanks to media coverage, they'd more easily accept information confirming that bias. It's possible the juror who made the bet wasn't the only one who walked in presuming Carol guilty. Still, it seemed like the jury would never get anywhere until one mentioned the option for life in prison. It should be noted here that it is against Nebraska law to decide on the punishment before deciding the verdict. Nevertheless, a few hours later, the jury returned to court with their decision in hand. Carol clutched her lawyers, praying for vindication. On the count of first-degree murder, she was found innocent. She breathed a sigh of relief, but there was one more charge. On the count of murder while in the perpetration of robbery, she was found guilty. The punishment the jury chose was life in prison. Carol burst into tears and was ushered out of the courtroom. 
Since she was too young to go to prison, she was placed in solitary confinement in a mental hospital for the next seven months. Once she turned 16, she could be held in a women's prison. In solitary, Carol wrote frantic letters, first to Charles, begging him to recant. He never answered. She then wrote to the governor of Nebraska and even to President Eisenhower. She begged both for permission to see Charles. She felt if she could just talk to him, he'd finally tell the truth. The letter to the president ended, quote, I know of no one else to turn to because all of my family I was living with he killed. I know you are very busy, but please help in any way you can. In return, Carol received a letter rejecting her request. With those words, her last hope was vanquished. On June 25, 1959, Charles Starkweather headed toward his execution. On the way, he asked why his handler was walking so slow. Once they finally reached the chair, the executioner strapped Charles in and asked for his last words. Stoic to the end, the killer shook his head. He'd take the truth about Carol Fugate to his grave. Minutes later, he was declared dead. With the only possible witness to the crimes gone, Carol Fugate was left to serve her sentence in prison. After 17 years behind bars, she was released for good behavior. She eventually married and began a quiet life in Hillside, Michigan. All of Carol Fugate's subsequent requests for a pardon from the state of Nebraska have been denied. She insists on her innocence to this day. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Zena Cresson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Terrell Wells. Fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>